I have a love tryst to share with you audience members today, but I'm going to get to that later. Thank you for tuning in to the Only You podcast. It is World Cancer Research Month here at the Only You. I want to share with you, when I was 11 years old, my childhood friend actually passed away from cervical cancer, and I actually used to help take care of her, and I want to share with you, if you guys don't if you guys don't know what a pap smear is, it's something that a woman has to do and go through. And many of uh, my audience members actually have to have pap smears. So I wanted to share with you, if you didn't know this, um, for 21 years, Mary Pepanacola volunteered to have her cervix sampled and smeared by her husband to help with his efforts to create the pap test, which has been shown to reduce cervical cancer deaths by up to 80%. Now, isn't that fantastic, you guys? I just had to share that because I thought, wow, what a great, wonderful woman, you know? I mean, that had to be, it couldn't have been comfortable and it couldn't have been great, you know? that She had to have been stressed about it, but, you know, she changed the face of the world and that was the way she did it and she knew that it needed to be done because they needed to know why those things were going on because, man, is that stuff tragic. I'm serious. One of some of the craziest stuff and, you know, later on, I want to share with you guys, after we get done with our love triangle, um, I want to share with you gene expression, and that's what we're going to kind of learn about today. And gene expression is the process by which the information encoded in your genes, it's turned into a process. Um, so like that's like a function, it's turned into a function. And it could lead to, you know, hereditary issues, you know, if we learn more about gene expressions and RNA molecules. And RNA molecules provide a variety of roles in the cell, but are mainly involved in the process of protein synthesis, which that means like translation. So the translation of neurochemicals being, you know, the neuroelectrical signals being transferred is through RNA molecules and there are non-coding RNA molecules as well and these are special this is a special class of RNA which um, they do not get translated to form a functional protein in our bodies so these get ignored of like you know like don't do that because we're not going to transmit that information because it's something that belongs just to that cell and it don't need to be transferred. But um, RNA or gene expression is like when, where, and how much a gene um, is expressed can be assessed by measuring the functional activity of gene product. And gene product would be the function, like with the way you run down the street. That's from your genes. Someone in your genes from, you know, 3,000 years ago used to run just like you or observing a phenotype and pheno means observe so yeah or you know or observing a phenotype associated with a gene is what I meant to say um, phenotypes refer to an individual's observable traits like height um, eye color uh, blood types uh, many, you know, anything that's noticeable would be a phenotype. You know, your, the size of your feet, the shape of your hands. Um, and phenotypes are determined by both their geno genomic makeup or genotype and environmental factors. Which makes sense because, I mean, 
if a person's under, you know, if I say if a person's bipolar, when we know, we learn in my other podcast that bipolarism is, you know, the body's reaction to so much stress in your mind. Like you, you know, th- having that fixed mindset of, oh, I could never do that, I can't do this, or whatever it may be. Um, those environmental factors affect everything. And that's, those stresses will in, uh, affect your RNA molecules and your gene expressions. But you can cultivate those things because some things are just mindsets. And we know now that we had learned later that mindsets can actually be um, changed. We just have to take the time to change them. And a lot of us don't want to take that time. So we get stuck in gene expression loops to where... We are passing on um, gene genes that haven't been really developed. Honestly, I think that that has a lot to do with our genes too. Is gene development? Um, I want to share with you about this love trust. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast, and hopefully, you enjoyed this today. I really enjoyed this one. When we think of Henry David Thoreau, we think of him at Walden. And Walden was Henry David Thoreau's book. It was like his memoir. And he used the four seasons to help express change in a man. And it wasn't a book that was well-received at the time. But later on, scholars found it to be one of the greatest reads ever. And I've been contemplating on sharing it with you guys. And maybe I will soon. Indeed, readers might be um, forgiven for imagining that he passed his entire adult life there with Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, planting beans and bouncing pebbles off the frozen surface of the pond. But in fact, Thoreau spent little more than two years in the cabin, and he built that cabin with his own two hands, and I found that to be remarkable. The rest of the time, and you can actually visit that cabin today, it's there on display as a museum. The rest of the time, he lived as a paying customer at the family's boarding house in Concord, Massachusetts. And yes, he sang the praise of perpetual motion. Methinks that the moment my legs begin to move, my thoughts begin to move, he once wrote. Yet, he largely stuck to his burrow with one notable exception, a protracted pajama party and two distinct chapters at the home of his great friend and mentor, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, Thoreau first joined the Emerson household around April of 1841, and at that point, Emerson was dallying with communitarian ideals, which communitarian means it's a type of belief that People are who they are because of certain connections they have in the community, and that creates them to kind of treat people the way they do and act the way they do. If we had more of that in the world and everywhere, everything might be a little bit better today. You never know. I think we should get back to it. And doubtless found uh, the idea of a great house more palatable than uh, carting manure at the nearby utopian compound of Brook Farm. Also, Emerson adored his young friend. He viewed Thoreau as a disciple, factum, personal healer. I work with him as I should not without him. 
Emerson informed his brother William, adding that the newest member of the house was a scholar and a poet and as full of buds of promise as a young apple tree. At the outset, of course, Thoreau was very much the junior partner in the relationship. Emerson was already an established writer and theological maverick, having published Nature in 1836 and ditched the pulpit at Boston's Second Church. And everybody, at that time, when Thoreau moved into Walden, actually Emerson went out and lobbied to have his stuff printed. And he, everything that he wrote, Emerson went out to all the publishers in the area and said, print this, it's worth it, it's worth it. And he kept lobbying to have his stuff printed, and it happened. Thoreau was a recent college grad. He um, washed out as a school teacher, 14 years younger than his host, Mr. Emerson. Um, Thoreau did his best to walk like Emerson, talk like Emerson, a feat of mimicry that poet James Russell Lowe described as exquisitely amusing. This was hero worship on steroids with a strong twist. It was also something more than that. Shortly before taking a brief trip with his idol, Thoreau wrote in his journal, Old friends is as holy a shrine as any God's to be approached with sacred love and awe. This sense of friendship as a spiritual undertaking, a fusion of kindred souls, flowed in both directions. So did the capacity to bring joy and, ultimate, and ultimately inflict pain. You could say the story of Thoreau and Emerson was a love story. It was complicated, however, by Thoreau's growing attachment to his mentor's wife. Lydian Emerson was an unlikely love object for Thoreau, though. She was, in 1841, a 38-year-old mother of two with mixed feelings about her marriage. She revered her husband, whom she did call Mr. Emerson, but viewed his disparagement of Christianity with mounting distress. It's not that Lydian was a Bible-thumping zealot. Her sense of belief was eclectic, encompassing Calvinist stringency and Unitarian sunshine. She had even gone through an anchorite phase as a teenager. And an anchorite is like a, a martyr. Starving herself and jumping over furniture as a character-building exercise. She, yet she was troubled by Waldo's views. Make your own Bible, he once wrote, feeling isolated from her smiling. Swan-necked spouse began girding herself for the long voyage of matrimony. She was also an endearing, neurotic person. If, in the course of straightening out the house, yeah, because this lady had a house she had to run, and she was in charge of tons of stuff there. She had a lot of responsibility on her shoulders. She had put a bigger book on top of a smaller one. She would awake in the middle of the night and correct it. And she would, like, think that it was a wicked arrangement. And she felt, like, the most powerful sort of, like, empathy for every living thing, like a cow, a cat, uh, chickens, and preferred to escort a spider outside rather than kill it. As the years went on, she retreated into hypochondrical mists, 
keeping four or five stout medical textbooks by her bed and dosing herself with, in her husband's words, poppy and oatmeal. <laughs> no doubt Lydian was sick from time to time, but like so many women of the era, she probably took to her bed a silent protest against democratic drudgery and emotional starvation. Because women didn't have a lot of rights that they have now back then. And into the scene, you know, they interject homely, ardent, Waldo-worshipping figure of Thorough. I, I couldn't imagine any sort of traditional flirtation between the two. Indeed, Thorough was so shy that was he was unable to pass through the kitchen with the two young maids without blushing. In addition, these were two young, busy human beings. Lydian, the wife, she ran a bustling household feeding not only her family, but a parade of Emerson fanboys and transcendental tourists. Thorough on the any given day would be planting trees, playing with the children, or constructing a cunning wooden box for his mentor's gloves. Hence the word glove box. Kind of cool. Certainly, there are fossilized hints here and there of a growing report having failing, or excuse me, having failed uh, to bring her husband back into the Eutarian fold. Lydian shared her spiritual impulses with Thoreau instead. And on January twenty fourth, eighteen forty three, when Emerson was away lecturing, Thoreau informed him that Lydian almost persuades me to be a Christian, but I fear. I as often lapse into heathenism. Lydian herself was pleasantly surprised by Thoreau's attendance, however, fleeting at church. On another occasion, touched by his uproarious excitement at having received a music box as a gift, she noted, I like human nature better than I did. None of this is the stuff of romance, yet something was afoot, something deep feeling germinated during those long days in the White House on Cambridge Turnpike. It is strange to have no record of that feeling as it developed because Thoreau and his circle did, uh, yeah, Thoreau and his circle, they did document their lives closely in real-time diaries, and they're out there to read. It's pretty interesting. You, you had to hardly ex experience a thing before you had written it down back then because you had to that's how you remembered and you knew and it's funny that we have all gotten away from writing things down that's why i tell you guys you know only the dumbest people write things down because they don't ever forget and that's what everybody used to do but perhaps you know thorough's growing attachment to lydian was simply too radioactive and too treacherous for him to commit to paper No, that would have to wait until he left the Emerson household. He remained there with some brief interruptions through May 1843. At that point, Thoreau found a way to escape his mentor's gravitational orbit while still remaining tethered to the family. He moved in with Emerson's brother William in Staten Island. There he would tutor William's son, recoil in horror from the urban density of Manhattan, and apparently pine for Lydian. And pine is like be sad and miss and want and crave. That's, come on, this has to be a love triangle. On May 22nd, not long after his arrival, he wrote a letter. I believe a good many conversations with you were left in an unfinished state, and now, indeed, I don't know where to take them up, but 
I will resume some of the unfinished silence. I shall not hesitate to know you. I think of you as some elder sister of mine, whom I could not have avoided, a sort of lunar influence, only of such age as the moon, whose time is measured by her light. The letter goes on for some time in this vein. It is very exalted, to say the least, a reflection of Thoreau's powerful feelings for Lydian, and also a kind of invasive maneuver, a musing of the trail. Since those feelings were forbidden by definition, if she were his sister, she certainly couldn't be an object of sexual desire. There went double for the moon whose virginal glow is nicely sanitizing in this context. The letter continues with one of Thoreau's loveliest affirmations, especially heartening during a time of pandemic lockdowns. Nothing makes the earth seem so spacious as to have friends at a distance. They make the latitudes and the longitudes. Then it cools down to the chummier temperatures. With regards passed to the children and to Emerson's aging mother, whose conquered face I should be glad to see here in the summer. Thoreau could hardly have ended on a more respectable note. Perhaps you say this was an isolated outburst from a lonely man. Perhaps, too, it was simply an example of the breathless vocabulary of friendship that was common then and less of now. And I think that, too. But this letter was followed by another. On June 20th, after Lydian had written him, her reply is actually lost and it's never been found. Thoreau tells his correspondent that he has gone to the top of a hill at sunset to read what she has written. The words are alive for him. Your voice seems not a voice, but comes as much from the blue heavens as from the paper. Then he moves on to another celestial metaphor. The thought of you will constantly elevate my life. It will be something always above the horizon to behold. As when I look up at the evening star, I think I know your thoughts without seeing you. And as well here as in Concord, you are not at all strange to me. Is this love? It lacks sort of erotic heat, which is not surprising. Thorough essentialist, when it came to natural world, seemed to view his own physicality as terra incognita. I must confess, there is nothing so strange to me as my own body. He had confided to his journal the previous year. I love anything other piece of nature, almost better. Granted, he had just lost his beloved brother to Lockjaw before he himself came down with psychomatic symptoms that vary the same disorder. He had reason to distrust his own flesh and blood, but in the notion of strange, strangeness 
that repelled him. At Emerson's elbow, he was conceived of universe in which all things were connected except with dismaying frequency, himself. How alone our life must be lived. He laminated in his journal, we dwell the seashore and none between us and the sea. Thank you for listening to the Only You Podcast. Your boy Lil Jackson wants to dive right into this love triangle between the Emersons and Thoreau. I am really wild by all this. And I hope that each one of you today has enjoyed learning about gene expression and the process, you know, which information encoded in our gene is turning to a process and then a function. Because once you understand the way RNA molecules work, and the way non-coding RNA molecules work, you can kind of understand, you know, how certain movements are in your body and why things are hereditary and why people get diseases and they're more susceptible to illnesses. Coding RNA molecules, and I feel like it's important to understand that, you know, when, where, and how a gene is expressed can be assessed by measuring the functional activity of a gene product or observing a phenotype associated with the gene. And I think that if each of us understood those gene expression processes that we struggle with, we would be able to actually excel and change more rapidly than as opposed to not knowing about gene expression or RNA molecules and how they affect each and every individual around us. But let's get back into this wonderful love tryst between the Emersons and Thoreau. These days we understand Thoreau to have been a non-practicing gay man whose retreat to his weatherized cabana at Walden was not only a blow struck against New England, but an anti-heretonormative broadside. And heretonormative movement was the belief that heterosexualism was the only way to be and there was no other way to be. It took a little while to arrive at this consensus. Walter Harding, one of his great modern biographers, was initially scolded for soft-pedaling this aspect of his subject in The Days of Henry Thoreau, published in 1965. As an act of contrition, Harding did a second forensic sweep through Thoreau's life, which caused him to revise his position and more or less anoint Thoreau as a gay man in, 19, in the 1991 issue of the Journal of Homosexuality. By now, there was an entire literature dedicated to Thoreau's role as a queer avatar. So, where does this leave his relationship with Lydian? My answer would be exactly where we found it. Not because I believe that Thoreau had any sort of sexual relationship with Lydian, Nobody seems to believe that, with the exception of the novelist Amy Building Brown, who imagines a semi-plausible tryst in the hayloft and Mr. Emerson's wife, published in 2005, the mistake is to treat Thoreau's relationship with Lydian as a kind of shell game, with a plain old heterosexual romance lurking beneath any number of concealments. And maybe they were polyamorous, who knows? Instead, I would argue it is a perfect specimen of his magnificent confusion about men and women and love and sex. It's not as though he never spoke out on these topics. 
Thoreau wrote a pair of essays, Love and Chastity, and Sensuality, which should theoretically clear the air for us, yet they are in the main flimsy things. In the first essay, Thoreau's resort to the transcendentalist decoder ring, which translates each and every form of goodness into another. The lover sees in the glance of his beloved the same beauty that in the sunset paints the western skies. He also suggests that the quickest way to torpedo such emotions is to divulge them. Right, because you're only as sick as your secrets. So once you expose the skeletons in your closet, all those secrets go away. That's why the Bible says, worry for nothing, pray for everything. Get down on your knees and repent. The second essay is more revealing. Thoreau plays two roles at once. The libertine, who argues that sexual matters should be discussed more frankly, and prude, who is visibly relieved that they are not. There is some blather about abstinence as virtue with lust elbowed out of the way by what Thoreau calls loftier delights, purity, nerve, heroism. He's all for virginity too, but then he gives his sample of approval to the botanical kingdom whose organs of generation are exposed to the eyes of all. In other words, we should all be like shameless flowers wearing our promiscuity on our sleeves or stamens. It's a surprising and hilarious reversal followed by the most honest paragraph in either essay. The intercourse of the sexes I have dreamed is incredibly beautiful, too fair to be remembered. I have had thoughts about it, but they are among the most fleeting and irrecoverable in my experience. It is strange that men will talk of miracles, revelation, inspiration, and the like as things pass while love remains. Sex to Thoreau was no more than a rumor, a rapidly dissipated dream. Love was something else, the last miraculous thing. He had no idea what to make of it, drawn as he was to both women, mostly men, eager to share his feelings and utterly convinced that such disclosure would kill them off for good. There is, as I mentioned, a second chapter. In September of 1847, Thoreau returned from the wilds of Walden to civilization, that is to say, to Emerson's house. There was a certain irony in the transition. By the pond, he had already been living on Emerson's land, which his friend had purchased a few years early, earlier, declaring himself, Lord Land and Water Lord of 14 Acres. But the conditions of his residency had changed. For one thing, the balance of power had shifted between Thoreau and his guru. By 1847, he had written drafts of one book, A Week on the Concord and Merrick Rivers, and assembled much of the raw materials for Walden. And that is Thoreau's greatest read is Walden. And if you've never read it, get out there and read that. It'll change your life and it'll give you great ideas and aspirations and ambitions. He was no longer a sidekick indeed. His mastery of large-scale narrative now outstripped his mentors. Meanwhile, the friendship between the two had been fraying. 
As early as 1843, Emerson complained that Thoreau's prose, with his constant paradox wrangling, made him nervous and wrenched. Isn't it funny how we love somebody so much in the beginning, and then as people, we just find ways to conform the relationship of... Um, it's like our minds find things to not like about somebody for stupid reasons sometimes. And it's, and it's terrible, and it sucks that we have to be that way as humans. He uh, viewed his former protege's avoidance of the poll tax and his subsequent night in jail as uh, skulking and, and of bad taste. And Thoreau was no less jaundiced and complaining about Emerson's characteristic detachment. I was never so near my friend when he was bodily present as when he was absent. The other great difference was that during Thoreau's second stay, which lasted about eight months, Emerson was away on lecture tour in Britain. His willingness to lecture the young man served as his family proxy suggests that a substantial reservoir of trust remained between the two, but it also meant that the roles had changed. Well, of course it had. Wouldn't you think it had? I, I think it should have. Because, I mean, any husband that has a woman, they know when their woman's wooing somebody else or acting silly, and I don't know if she was, but, I mean, but times were different then, and people respected each other, and there was boundaries, and there wasn't all this uh, destruction of, like, you know, I don't know, it's almost like the self is the self and no one can touch the self in America and nobody wants to cultivate the self, but then again, they want to blame everybody for not being cultivated. It's kind of interesting the way things go nowadays. And um, If Thoreau and Lydian had been playing at young lovers the first time around, they had now switched to husband and wife. Lydian and I make very good housekeepers. Thoreau informed Emerson in a letter on November 14th she is a very dear sister to me. He quickly adds, least his correspondents get the wrong idea. Thoreau also took particular pleasure in the Emerson children who adored their pinch-hitting pedophilias. Indeed, which pedophilias was like uh, your mentor or uh, the leader of the house, somebody to look up to. Indeed, in the same letter quoted above, he seems to be goading his old patron. Young Edward Emerson, he notes, had asked him, Mr. Thoreau, will you be my father? Lydian, for her part, took to her bed for much of Emerson's absence. His lengthy withdrawal from the family left life depressed for her, as did his chilly and correct replies to her letters. Her vulnerability probably intensified her relationship with Thoreau. They were, after all, both enthralled to the same man and to each other, a love triangle of a peculiar and exasperating kind. Again, we have no way of knowing what happened between them. There is an intriguing emptiness here, another installment of what Thoreau had earlier called their unfinished silence. Had his feeling for Lydian vanished? I think not. In 1848, most likely after Emerson had returned and Thoreau exited the household for good, Thoreau addressed Lydian once more, this time in his journal. He doesn't use her name, but the continuity with his earlier missives from Staten Island is undeniable. I think of you as my sister, he writes. 
I presume to know you. Others of my kindred by blood or of my acquaintance, but you are mine. He adds, I cannot tell where I leave off and you begin. This was no mere declaration of love, but an ecstatic merger, or at least the desire for one. Thurl goes on at length, producing something beautiful, perhaps as much intoxicated by the beauty as by the subject at hand. When I love you, I feel as if I were annexing another world of mine. He declares, we splice the heavens. He concludes with a wild apostrophe, biblical in its rhetoric and the flip side, one imagines of his consistent feelings of solitude and strangeness, whom I thought my spirit continually embraces and to whom I flow, who is not separate from me, who art clothed in white, who comest like an incense, who art all that I can imagine, my inspire, the feminine of me. What catches my eye here is the last phrase, it's wonderfully muddled sense that male and female are interchangeable and possibly besides the point. It was gender fluidity before we had a name for it and a reshuffling of the romantic deck. Speaking of which, Thoreau might never have spoken again to Lydian about his feelings, not after they stopped playing house in 1848. He might never have made peace with his own physical self that parcel of matter that always struck him as uncanny, perplexing, queer in his sense of the word and perhaps in ours. I fear bodies, he once wrote. I tremble to meet them. But souls were anything, and he surely felt that Lydian had peered into his and he into hers. It was a heavenly splicing operation, and that may be the best definition of love this great solitary ever came up with and thank you guys for listening to the only you and hopefully you've enjoyed this wonderful love trist i thought this was very informative and very informational and i had to share this with you because it was just something of disbelief you know when i was doing my research and i found this at the beginning of the month but i thought well i'm going to include this later on so i could kind of excite you guys a little bit Thank you guys for listening and thank you for sharing me and thank you for heading over to Spotify and giving me five stars over there. I do appreciate it. I'm trying my heart out for you guys, giving you some great information and maybe some good read and learning about gene expression and RNA molecules. And then also we learned about fixed mindsets and growth mindsets. We learned about anxious attachment styles, secure attachment styles. When you're walking down the street and you look into the sky and you see that X that looks like clouds, just know that that's the greatest treasure that you're ever going to come to know. So if you think that life 
hasn't been fair, has mistreated you, misdirected you, the only person that holds the keys to ever changing that prodigium is yourself. Self-reliance is important. Nature is important. Development's important. Being the best human being is important. And we are here for one purpose, and that's God's purpose. And I do appreciate every single one of you. Thank you so much for following me, and thank you so much for sharing me. It's been a real treasure getting to know each and every one of you, and thank you guys so much for getting to know me. I don't know everything, but I do know something, and a lot of the things I know, a lot of people don't. That's why I try to share this podcast. That's why I keep learning, continue to grow, continue to change and develop. Not saying that I don't have fixed aspects in my mind. Not saying that I don't struggle with self-development because I do. I'm a human. Not saying that I'm too proud to admit when I'm wrong because I'm not. Many of us out there have a ways and means that we think that we're better than people. And, and maybe we don't think that we're better than people. Maybe we don't even see how we are because we're too busy focusing on materialistic things and not realizing the devastation that we cause along the way, even though we have a fixed mindset or we have a, you know, avoidant attachment style. And we don't think that anything's wrong with it the way we are, but yet everybody's walking on eggshells and nobody's happy or everybody's happy and nobody's telling everybody the truth about why they're happy. And there's many things in families that go on that we have no idea about. I still continue to learn about families. And if you've never heard about family hierarchy, check it out on the internet. You know, every one of us plays a role in a family dynamic. And the dysfunctional family dynamic is played out of like the first child's the hero of the family. Um, then the, I believe the middle child's like the mascot or the black sheep. And then the last child's like uh, pretty much like the. Um, the golden child. I can't remember. I, it's been a while since I checked that stuff out. But, you know, there's so much different psychological stuff that we could learn. And do you think that these guys back then knew what I'm talking about now? Well, they had a definite recollection. I mean, look at Henry David Thoreau's description at the end of that read. The read was a great read, right? It was Thoreau in Love. And that was written by James Marcus on October 11th. Or, excuse me, it was published on October 11th of 2021. When I came across this read at the beginning of the month, I was not sure exactly where I was going to include it on the podcast, but I thought this week was the one. I, it felt right to me to share that with you because, you know, there were at a time when behaviors like that could get you killed. Um, people were more susceptible to, you know, being shot to death or, you know, vigilantes coming getting these people for behaving in inappropriate ways or what was deemed inappropriate back then. And I hope you guys have enjoyed learning about permanent traits like fixed mindsets, growth mindsets, attachment styles. I try to include awesome things that can help each other. We can help each other grow. We can help each other change or help people we know. Like, hey, you need to go see somebody or hey, you might need to look into reading this because you know we too can help ourselves we don't always have to go out and find a counselor or a life coach i mean granted there are people that really do need people like that and those people are set in place to be mentors and to help those people who struggle and have no drive and that don't know how to even 
begin the process. And that's why those people are set in place. I thank you guys for following me and thank you for sharing me so much. The audience is growing. I love it. I'm excited. And I am almost at 20,000 um, listens. I am so grateful. I can't believe this. And I am going to have a special little celebration uh, at 20,000 listens. So tune in for that. And the upcoming read I'm going to do next week will be the end of Ralph Waldo Emerson. So hopefully you've enjoyed everything I've shared with you about this gentleman. And it has got more views this month than the last couple months. So I am totally grateful for that. All these authors have something to offer every single person out there, whether it be just a sweet little read or to hear something great about what they did during their lives. Because our lives are here to be impressionable to those around us and to spread love and joy to our families and to our congregations that we belong to or the teams or the different groups out there that everybody associates with. We need to be the light in the world and try to shut out the darkness because there's too much of it out there in the world today. And it's kind of sad and sorrowful the way things have gone in recent years. And hopefully we can get this um, terrible situation that we're in back to good. And it's only up to us. And the change starts with you and me as well. And I'm trying to. I'm not perfect. I'm hypocritical sometimes. I get it. But I'm not biased. I really try to put myself in other people's shoes before creating and deciding anything because I never know how anybody's feeling. I never know what they're going through and I never know what they're thinking and neither do you. So we need to be cognitive of those different types of situations that are going on. I love you guys and thank you again and hopefully you've enjoyed this love tryst.